been to Bethlehem numerous times, and as you know, there were a large group of us that were there just a couple of months ago. And every time I go to Bethlehem, I'm, I'm struck by the fact that it is at the very heart and center of, of international conflict. In, in one moment, we are on Israeli soil, and we see Israeli soldiers, and within just a matter of seconds, as the bus drives through, uh, through the large gates, we're in Palestinian territory, and there are Palestinian soldiers and Palestinian police. And then when you, when you go to Manger Square, it's a beautiful place. The Church of the Nativity is where you go to, to visit and, and to commemorate the, uh, the, the advent, the coming of, of Jesus. You're reminded of the international makeup of the people of God. You see people of, people of God there from, from all parts of the world. And you hear all kinds of different languages. And it's a, just a reminder that God has his people everywhere. But you're also reminded by the, by the tight security that we don't live in a world of peace. We live in a world of hostility. And as we were leaving this time, Jaylen and I were maneuvering our way through the crowd with the rest of our group. And, and just as we're leaving Manger Square, the, the large uh, Muslim minarets begin to ring out with the Islamic call to prayer. And so you hear, uh, you hear these, this call to prayer resonating throughout the city, a call to prayer to a, to a God that doesn't exist. And, and there you are in Manger Square. And as we're working our way back to the bus, we pass, I mean, dozens and dozens and dozens of, of, of Muslim men on their knees bowing in prayer toward, toward Mecca. And it's a shocking reminder that the world is not at peace. Uh, the kind of peace most people are looking for is the, the peace which is the absence of hostility. And, and that's one form of peace. It's an objective form of peace. It's the kind of peace that you, that you experience when you've had uh, five grandchildren spend the night like we did last night and they finally in bed and then you collapse on the couch and it's just complete silence. Uh, that's subjective peace. It's the kind of peace that the, the kind of peace most people are longing for, the kind of peace that most people are, are yearning for. A world without war, without fighting, homes that are not acrimonious in spirit. But there's a more important kind of peace, it's an objective peace. It's a peace that can be present in the midst of hostility. We've got members of our congregation from, from China. These precious brothers and sisters have family members that are suffering intense persecution. And yet, while they lack subjective peace, they have objective peace, peace with God that's not based on the absence of hostility in the world around them. We've got brothers and sisters from all around the world that come from places where there is intense persecution and suffering. We've got brothers and sisters in our church whose 
Family members have put them out because they committed their lives to Jesus Christ. There, there is a lack of subjective peace, the kind of harmony that most of us long for, but it's not the kind of peace that Jesus came to bring. In fact, Jesus said he came to bring a sword. Uh, not that there would be physical tumult, but there's going to be divisions. Divisions between people because of the gospel. And yet, there is a peace that God gives that's more important than, than a quiet evening at home or relational peace. It's the kind of peace that exists between us and God. It's an objective peace. It's when God declares us to be forgiven and righteous. Let me begin reading in verse 8 and read through verse 14 if you'd follow along in Luke chapter 2. Beginning in verse 8, in the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid for behold I bring you good news of great joy which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. Circle that word for me in your Bible. Peace among men with whom he is pleased. Now, this is a very famous passage. It's one of the most famous Christmas passages in the Bible. And that word peace, it resonates in the human heart because there's something intuitive about it and about us that longs for peace. But typically it's the subjective peace that we're thinking about. But that was not the kind of peace the angels were proclaiming. Because as the shepherds would go into Bethlehem, it's very likely they would have seen Roman soldiers. If they were to go into Jerusalem, they would have seen Roman soldiers. They would have known they were a subjugated people. They would have known that they were a people that were, that were ruled by hostile forces. It wasn't a subjective peace that the angels offered. It was an objective peace. The question is, why do we need peace? Why do we need the kind of peace that the angels were proclaiming and that the Bible declares that we need? Well, let me direct your attention to three passages of Scripture. The first one is Ephesians chapter 2. I think I put chapter 3, but chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Listen to Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, and you'll get a sense of why we have a message of peace. And why Christmas is about not the subjective peace of, of calmness, but an objective peace of a right relationship with God. Paul writes, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all form, formerly lived. And the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, 
and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. We don't have time to dig into those verses as deeply as we would like, but there are three things that are obvious and clear. First, every person apart from Christ is spiritually dead, spiritually enslaved, and spiritually condemned. They are dead to God and to the things of God. They are enslaved to the world, the flesh, and the devil. And they are spiritually condemned. They are in a hostile relationship to God. Every human being outside of Christ can be described in those three verses. Colossians chapter 1 verse 21. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds... Notice he's talking to the Colossians. He's writing to the Colossians. He's saying, this is what you once were. Before you met Jesus, you were alienated from God. You were hostile in your mind to God, and you engaged in evil deeds. That's who all of us were outside of Christ. And if you're outside of Christ today... Paul is describing you. That's the way that he described me before I met Jesus at 19 years of age. Romans chapter 5 and verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. We'll say a little bit more about the latter part of that verse as we celebrate the Lord's Supper in a few minutes. It's the first part of the verse that I want us to note. For while we were enemies. That is, we are a people that need peace. We would love to have subjective peace, but we may not have it in this world. We have brothers and sisters that will live their entire Christian lives under the hand of persecution, longing for subjective peace. And so that's something we desire, it's something that we often enjoy, and it's something that we can experience. But apart from Christ, there is no peace with God. Let me me just point out for you, what do we learn from these passages? We learn that apart from Christ, we're spiritually dead, enslaved, condemned, alienated, hostile, and we are his enemies. That's the Bible's description of every person outside of Jesus Christ, regardless of their upbringing or their morality or how, how uh, good they are as a person. And there are many, 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 many millions of very good non-Christian people. But the Bible says in their relationship to God, they need to be, they're described in the way that we've looked at in Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 3, Colossians chapter 1, verse 21, and in Romans chapter 5, verse 10, at the beginning of the passage. That's why peace was needed. That's why Christmas came. That's why the incarnation is about the Prince of Peace. In fact, God sent Jesus, this is the second point I want you to note this morning, God sent Jesus to achieve for us what we could never accomplish on our own. See, sometimes we think as we grow and mature in our faith and as our discipleship becomes uh, becomes more ingrained in us, 
that we get past the gospel. We grow past the gospel. I need something beyond the gospel. Well, the gospel affects every area of our lives. But there are certain seasons of the year when we need to go back to the reason for the gospel. Particularly at Christmas and at Easter. The Bible declares that there, is, that there, was, a, there was one to come all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. There was one that the people of God were looking for. There was the seed of Abraham, the son of David, the seed of the woman that would crush the serpent's head, that everyone was looking for one. Isaiah described him as the prince of peace. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And in fact, Paul, reflecting and, and meditating on another passage in Isaiah beyond this passage, wrote these words in Ephesians chapter 2. And he came and preached peace to you who were near and to you who were far away. He came and preached peace to those who were near the Jewish people and to those who were far away, the Gentile people. You and I were far away. You and I were not a part of the Jewish people. He came and he preached peace as the Jewish Messiah, but he also preached peace to all people. In fact, isn't that what the passage says? I bring you Great, or I'm sorry, good news of great joy for all the people. For all the people. What a beautiful thought. Jesus came to be a messenger of peace. And when we receive the message of peace, we become messengers of peace. Jesus was the light of the world, but we are a city, a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. We are his ambassadors. We are ambassadors for Christ with the message of peace. So we turn our attention to Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14. And, and I want us to consider for these next few minutes the announcement of the arrival of the Prince of Peace. A passage we're familiar with, a passage that all of us love. A passage that we read not only during the Christmas season, but literally all year long but particularly during the Christmas season. I want you to notice a great reversal in verse 8, how the outsiders become insiders. Verse 8, in the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flocks by night. When he says in the same region, in the passage just before this, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, Luke describes the birth of Jesus. So in that same region, not very far from where Jesus was born, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the city of David. We'll see that in just a moment. Not very far outside the city were the, were the shepherds. Uh, now in the Bible, shepherds were very laudatory in the, in the occupation. In fact, God described himself as a shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, the psalmist said. King David was a shepherd. 
And Ezekiel, Ezekiel prophesied that the Messiah would be a shepherd. And in fact, Jesus said in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. And yet in Jesus' day, among the religious elite, among those who controlled the, the temple and the synagogues, shepherds were considered nomadic vagabonds. They didn't have time to keep up with all of the meticulous regulations of the rabbis. They were considered outsiders. Uh, they weren't considered very uh, good people by many of the religious people. And in fact, the rabbis didn't believe that the shepherds were credible witnesses in a trial. You couldn't, you couldn't call a, a shepherd to testify in a trial in a court of law uh, because they were vagabonds, they were nomads. And they were considered to be thieves. Well, it's interesting that when the angels announced the coming of Jesus, they didn't go to the temple. They didn't go to the Sanhedrin. They didn't go to the chief priests. They didn't go to the rabbis. They, they didn't go to Caesar Augustus. The angels went to shepherds. People that were on the fringes of Jewish society. People that were considered outsiders. In fact... That's a very important theme to Luke in Luke's gospel, the outsiders. Luke's the only one that tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. Luke's the only one that tells the story of Zacchaeus. Luke's the only one that tells a story in Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50, about an immoral woman breaking into the dinner party at the home of Simon the Pharisee, anointing Jesus' feet, and this woman had the reputation of being immoral. And Jesus forgives her of her sins. There's something about outsiders. Jesus said, I have come to preach to the poor, to the downtrodden, to the outcast. He was accused of being the friend of sinners. He earned that reputation the old-fashioned way. He was the friend of sinners. He didn't get that reputation because it wasn't true. He got that reputation because it was true. And if Jesus was a friend of sinners, how much more important is it for us to be the friend of sinners? Often we want to keep sinners at arm's distance, but Jesus didn't keep sinners at arm's distance. He came to us. He loved us before we loved him. He sought for us before we ever sought for him. He died for us while well, we were yet his enemies, Paul teaches. And so outsiders become insiders. And, and there's something wonderful and glorious and spectacular about the fact that Jesus' birth was announced first to shepherds. But I want you to notice with me a second idea in these verses, an unexpected appearance that these angels appeared to the shepherds and the shepherds were completely unprepared for it. An unexpected appearance. Look with me in verse 9. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terribly frightened. We don't know who this angel is. It may very well have been Gabriel though. 
because we know the angel Gabriel in chapter 1 appeared to the father of John the Baptist before John the Baptist was conceived, Zacharias, while he was in the temple at work doing his priestly duty. And then the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary as Mary, the young teenage girl, is told that she's going to give birth to a son while yet a virgin. But something here that sets this appearance apart from the appearance to Zechariah and to Mary is the glory of God illuminated the night sky. It was a frightening thing to behold an angel. It was frightening to Zechariah. It was frightening to Mary. But when the night sky, the brilliant, beautiful night, Bethlehem sky was illuminated by the glory of God, the shepherds experienced something that Zechariah and Mary did not experience, the manifestation of God's presence, the manifestation of God's glory. What were they doing? They weren't on a spiritual retreat. They weren't in a mountaintop experience. They were going about their day-to-day living. They, they were out in the fields. They were watching the, the sheep. They were making sure that they were, they were not uh, eaten by wolves. They were making sure that hustlers and rustlers wouldn't come and, and take away any of their sheep. They were guarding the sheep. They were just living their life, and then God stepped into their world, and that's the way God typically works, isn't it? Think about Peter, Andrew, James, and John for just a moment. Fishermen on the Sea of Galilee, casting their nets. Another bad night, no catch of fish. They're standing by the seashore. They're getting things cleaned up, getting ready to go on with the rest of their day. Jesus says, follow me and become fishers of men. They weren't on some isolated retreat. They were going about their day-to-day living when God stepped into their world in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about Matthew. Matthew was sitting in a tax collector's booth. Matthew was not in a synagogue service. Matthew wasn't in a quiet time. Matthew was doing what Matthew did. He was stealing, lying, scheming, and conniving. And then Jesus walked up and he said, follow me. And he became a changed man. In that little phrase, follow me, Matthew's heart was turned. Matthew became a different person. Matthew made his living as a tax collector by scheming and lying and cheating. He was hated by the Jewish people. He couldn't testify in a court of law. He was considered an outcast. His parents would have been embarrassed by him. There he sat. He wasn't seeking Jesus. He wasn't following Jesus. He was right in the midst of sinful activity. Jesus walks up, says, follow me. His heart is changed. He gets up. He leaves it all behind and follows Jesus. He didn't get his life fixed up. He didn't get his life cleaned up. He didn't say, I'm going to have to stop cheating, lying, scheming. I'm going to have to quit being a traitor to my people and collaborating with the Romans. No, God went to him. He didn't go to God. And that's the way God works. He's always preeminent. He's always previous. He's always first. And so God approached him. And that's the way that it is with all of us. God loved us before we ever loved him God sought us before we ever sought him. 
God convicted us of our sin before we were ever remorseful of our sin. And as you've heard me say hundreds of times, I was at 19 years of age riding in a truck with two hooligans headed back to a, headed back to a, a trailer on a cross-country trip. Had no inclination of the gospel. I didn't know Genesis from Revelation. Just like that, I had the overwhelming sense, see God, you'll find life. I went home, started reading the Bible, and I didn't realize that what was happening is that God was seeking me before I ever sought God. And that's what we have right here. But I want you to notice a glorious announcement in verses 10 through 14. Almost every word is important. Virtually every word matters. Verse 10, but the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news. That's an interesting phrase translated, I bring you good news. You could, you could almost translate it kind of in a, kind of a paraphrase like this. I bring you gospel. I bring you gospel. The gospel is good news. Luke uses this very word many, many times in the book of Acts about preaching the gospel. The good news is the gospel. The good news is God hasn't left us to ourselves. God hasn't left us to try and find a way to heaven because there is no way to heaven. He has brought salvation to us. I bring you good news of great joy. You remember the quote from John Stott that I read last week, that Christians ought to be the most joyful and the most optimistic of people. The most joyful of people because we've been justified by faith. That is, we've been, we have been forgiven of all of our sins and counted righteous because of what Jesus Christ has done. And we ought to be the most optimistic of people because the God we love and serve is the God that sits on heaven's throne. Uh, rather than being so pessimistic, we ought to be realistic optimists about what God can do and what God is doing. I bring you great good news of great joy. Now this would have meant much to Luke because Luke was not one of Jesus' 12 disciples. Luke wasn't even Jewish. Luke was a Gentile. Luke's the only Gentile author in the New Testament, but in fact, he wrote more of the New Testament than any other person. When you take the Gospel of Luke, which is the longest book in the New Testament, and the book of Acts, which is probably the second longest book in the New Testament, he wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And so when he has the words, which shall be for all people, that would have meant so much to a Gentile. A Gentile who had watched the Jewish nation maybe from afar and been on the outside looking in for all people. And then he says, for today, not yesterday and not tomorrow, but today. Yesterday, the coming of the Messiah was in prophecies. Institutions like the sacrificial system foreshadowed in the Jewish rituals. But today, 
the prophecies have come to fulfillment. Today, all of the shadows have come to fruition. In fact, that word today, it really means quite a bit to Luke. He uses it a number of times. We don't have time to go through all of them, but let me just mention two of them. One is, with the very first sermon Jesus preaches in Luke's gospel in chapter 4, Jesus quotes Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. The scroll is then given back, and Jesus sits down, and he says, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Today. Chapter 19, Zacchaeus. I mentioned Zacchaeus a moment ago. Zacchaeus, the only chief tax collector in the New Testament. Jesus is going through Jericho up in that tree. As little Zacchaeus, Jesus says, come down for today. I must stay at your house. He speaks to him by name, Zacchaeus. He knew who Zacchaeus was, even though he had never met Zacchaeus before, because he set his love on Zacchaeus. He set his affections on Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus comes down and welcomes him to him into his house. The crowd begins to murmur and grumble and complain because Zacchaeus is a tax collector. He says, today, today salvation has come to this house. Not yesterday, not tomorrow, today the angels say. In the city of David, in the city of Bethlehem, hundreds of years before this proclamation was made, the little-known prophet Micah, Micah chapter 5, verse 2, prophesied that the Messiah would be born in the city of David. Prophecies are coming to fulfillment. Shadows are giving way to reality. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord, a Savior. Exactly what the world needs, a Savior to be saved from our sin. A Savior is born. And lo and behold, this Savior is the Jewish Messiah and he is God incarnate. In fact, you could almost say, who is Christ Lord? The, the word Christ means anointed one. It's the New Testament word for the Old Testament word, but Messiah, both Messiah and Christ mean anointed one. Usually in the Old Testament, a king would be anointed, a priest would be anointed, a prophet would be anointed. But the Messiah is the anointed one. He is our Savior and he is our God. Every word is important. And he says, this is going to be a sign. If you go into the city, you're going to find a baby wrapped in claws. Think about it. Heaven's king swaddled in cloths, lying in a manger. What an unbelievable demonstration of humble love. That, that he would leave heaven and come to earth as Paul prayed in his prayer, not as a man, but a baby. So that he could experience everything we experience from infancy through adulthood with the exception of sin, just like us. He was vulnerable. He was needy. Wrapped in swaddling claws, as they say. Suddenly, a whole choir of the angel appear. That is, uh, 
They all break forth in song, singing glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace. There's our word. Why do we need peace? Because we're alienated from God. We are condemned by God. And rightfully so. See, salvation is first and foremost being reconciled to God, being at peace with God. Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 5. In Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith. I've mentioned the word justified earlier. There's two aspects to justification. It's a Bible word. We really need to, to learn it. It's not a word we're very familiar with. It sounds archaic to us. Uh, maybe upper shelf theology, but it's right here by the Apostle Paul writing to young believers in Rome. It means to be forgiven, completely, totally forgiven of every sin we've ever committed or every sin we will ever commit and clothed in a righteousness that's not our own, counted as righteous, reckoned as righteous. What do we do? We don't do anything but receive it by faith. We can't earn it. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we receive it, we believe it, we accept it. And what's the result? What's the first result of justification by faith? We have peace with God. Why? Because we're alienated from God. We're separated from God. We're hostile in our minds toward God. We're dead toward God. We're enslaved to the world, the flesh, and the devil. We're under the condemnation of God. But now, through Christ, we are justified by faith and we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Not through some ritual, not through some religious figure. No, through our Lord Jesus Christ. The full majestic title. To say that he's Lord is to say that he's God. To say that he's Jesus is to say that he became incarnate. He, he took on human flesh. To say that he's the Messiah is to say that he fulfills all of the prophecies that were foretold of the messianic figure in the Old Testament. He is the one that crushed Satan's head. He's the greater David. He's the better Moses. He fulfilled the sacrificial system through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And so we are the beneficiaries of that if we know God through Christ. That is, there's nothing you could do that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus if you know God through Jesus Christ. You can be rest secure at night. You may have a bad day like I often have. You may do bad things like I sometimes do. But you do not have to fear that God will abandon you or forsake you because you didn't save yourself by what you did. You can't lose your salvation by what you do. You've been justified. And the glorious and wonderful thing is that when we do those things, the Spirit of God within us convicts them convicts us of them. And we, we grieve over that. There are others here today that, that have a sense of restlessness in your soul. Why is it that we long for peace? It's a part of being 
created in the image of God. But what we think we're longing for in our hearts is subjective peace. Well, well, that might be true in part. If we could peel it back like a, like a surgeon has to do in order to, to get to the root cause of a, of a person's problem, we would find that what it really is, it's peace with God. That the peace that we're longing for, the restlessness that we experience is God's way of saying, you need him. Because while the peace of God is a wonderful thing, that can be taken away just like that, peace with God. I'm sorry, the peace of God. Let me put it like that. The peace of God can be taken away like that. Persecution. Sickness, death, turmoil. But peace with God is an objective reality that can never be lost. So as we celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, what we're celebrating is that objective reality that those of us who know God through Christ Jesus are at peace with him. You may be a guest today and you're wondering, well, Pastor What's the church's policy about guests uh, partaking of the Lord's Supper? If you're a brother or sister in Christ, you've been baptized, uh, you're, you're seeking to follow him, you're, you're with us today, maybe you're looking for a church home, maybe you're visiting friends, maybe you were just running late and you just stopped in, but you're, you are a faithful follower of Jesus. Not perfect, because I tell you, as you hear, hear me say every time, I take two steps forward and it's usually it's one step back, not too long after I get those two steps forward we would invite you to, to partake of the Lord's Supper today. Uh, but if you're not following the Lord, then we would encourage you not to partake of the Lord's Supper today. What is the Lord's Supper? The Lord's Supper is a means of grace by which God strengthens us spiritually. I'm not talking about something ethereal or mystical. What I'm talking about is a reality. When a, when, a, when a brother or sister reads the Bible, thy word was found and I ate them, thy word became for me a joy. Man does not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. When we read the Bible, the Spirit of God strengthens us. It's a means of grace. When we gather together in congregational singing, I don't know about you, I sing, as you, as you know, when I forget to turn off my mic, I sing loudly and, and uh, I, love, I love to sing, but... It's a means of grace. I feel strengthened by congregational worship. I feel strengthened by prayer. You experience this. You get in your prayer closet. You get on your knees. You pray. You pour your heart out to God. You're engaging God in conversation through the reading of the word, praying the scriptures, and God strengthens you. Well, it's the same with the Lord's Supper. This is not just a mere ritual. It is a blessing from, from God. So I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer. We're going to, our men are going to come forward. Uh, Pastor Tommy's going to, uh, to assist me this morning. And so let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that those of us who know you through Christ Jesus have that objective peace. We may not have the subjective peace, but the peace that really matters the peace that introduces us to you is yours and ours 
because of our relationship with you through Christ Jesus. And so, Father, as we partake of the Lord's Supper, many of us are weak and anemic and we're struggling. It seems like we've taken two steps back. We really need you to work today to remind us through the Lord's Supper of your love for us. So, Father, we pray that the Spirit of God, your Holy Spirit, would work in us as we partake of the Lord's Supper. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.